You are listening to Mark Hatmaker Rough and Tumble Raconteur. This is a grab bag of old school Western martial arts, resurrected indigenous ways and empirical musings tinged with a heavy dose of respect, admiration, let's call it hero worship, for these hosses of yore. Crew, this is Mark Hattenmaker coming to you from the Command Sharia. Today, let's talk about a, well, what I perceive to be a possible, possible problem in uh, current uh, training. We're training for reality because we are talking nothing about sport training or training for an art sense. We are talking about if we're claiming we're training for street or reality combat. And we're going to be talking about dual versus deficit training. When we say dual, we're talking about D-U-E-L as in swords at dawn. All right, now there will be a little bit of mud flinging going on here, and again, this is only if we follow the definitions, uh, no one will have uh, their butt hurt about what's going on here. Uh, we're talking about the most common form of training uh, if it claims to be reality based or reality focused. And we're, again, we're talking about dual based training, D U E L. Now, to get us going, let's define terms. A duel is a contest between two people with deadly weapons to settle a point of honor. Okay, that's a no-brainer, right? Okay, now that definition is standard and holds. There may be a variety of weapons at play and some differences in how the two honor-wounded approach the game, but overall, we have two at play and a contest. Uh, whether we're looking at uh, uh, sabers, we're looking at foil, we're looking at pistols, we're looking at tomahawks, we're looking at a bowie knife duel in a six-foot dug grave, uh, according to some legends. Uh, for just uh, some history of it, take a look at the Barbara Holland's delightful book, Gentleman's Blood, A History of Dueling from Swords at uh, Dawn to Pistols at Dusk. And there's a staggering sameness to it all. It's a lot of fun. There's one, lots of wonderful good books on uh, dueling history there, but I think that's a nice little entry point. Um, now, again, no one doubts that the stakes of a duel are high. We're talking life or death or perhaps till first blood wounding, which was still a fearsome prospects in the day before antibiotics. It's not like now we can go out there and, you know, you know do a little bit of rolling, do some MMA and, you know, bust each other up a little bit and think, oh, cool, let's go home. Many duels are being conducted, again, pre-antibiotics, and uh, particularly if it's being done with uh, blade play. A lot of these were you know, stripped to the waist. Even female duelists, as salacious as that sounds, because why? Well, it was wisdom, because uh, cloth fibers being steel-pierced into a wound can wind up compounding the chances of infection. So you're trying to do everything you can to uh, kibosh that. We, got, we can't forget, these are the days of yore where we're, we're pretty much 21st century pampered gods now. We, lest we forget, hell, even a president's son died from a blister he got from a uh, playing tennis uh, at a court. He was just a blister on his foot, and that turn got a little bit infected, wound up turning septic and, and killing it. It doesn't have a weak system. It's just that uh, these, these, the blessings of these uh, pharmaceuticals are astonishing and astounding, and we should, it's no way, it's, it's almost impossible for us to get ourselves in the mindset of what it was pre these things. So when we're looking at blood at the time and people running around and doing some rough and tumble scrum and hurting and gouging and biting each other, you're going to go, not only were these wounds as we're seeing as we would expect about the uh, the ex external externalities of them, seeing them, all the sepsis that goes along with it, we can't even imagine that because we do not live in that world. Again, no one doubts that a duel is a deadly or potentially deadly affair, but a duel is still a contest. It is still single combat. It is still two competitors. It is, in a sense, a sport with raised stakes. 
Now, let's talk about civilizing Peltzman effects. Peltzman, I've, again, I've talked about this again and again, talking about how where we add uh, safety factors to increasingly streamline sports, make things a lot uh, more safe for us. Sometimes it winds up uh, making things less safe, but often we continue on. You know, leather helmet days of football, of course, before that, no helmets. And um, you pr- proceed past that, and almost yada, yada, and continue on. Or you look at early days, you look at these open-wheeled race drivers in the teens, uh, or, or 1900 the teens, you see a lot of them have uh, riding in these cars with just cigars and goggles with the cigars for it. They're not smoking in that thing. They're biting in the cigar to prevent them from knocking their teeth out because there's not even a mouthpiece at this time. So things have to come along and kind of clean up what's going on. Now, whether we're talking about, we're going to go back to duels, skills with the blade or a cudgel or a quarter staff, any weapon at hand preceded the formal uh, punctilia of this is how it is done. And then that simply isn't cricket, old chap. You know, forgive that accent there, or at least a stab at an accent. Uh, duels have rules to them. That sense where there's a don, who's your seconds, present the weapons. We've seen this 10 paces. I mean, it's not always done that way, but there's always some sort of protocol to it. So in a sense, a duel is a civilizing or taming of savagery. It is the semi-civilized, quote, game that better classes imposed upon weapon conduct to allow easier entry of the gentry into the ranks of honor or manhood. So what I'm saying is, prior to the duel or in the lower classes, these same manners of uh, punctilia were not being observed. We had a rougher game, and many would say more deadly game, or even worse game, or eviler game, if that is such a word, and some will say more skillful game. No less an authority on duels and fencing itself in all its forms from the Middle Ages to the 18th century was Egerton Castle, who also wrote some interesting uh, uh, swashbuckling fiction. It's not the best, but it ain't the worst either. Uh, Castle stipulates that no matter how elegant or skilled a fencing master may have been, uh, there was likely something of a different and, quote, earthier quality to be found in these, quote, gutters, kennels, and muddy byways, the schools of defense. And kennels in that uh, phrase there, kennel originally referred to a groove that ran down the center of a street working people the horse piss and, and muck and mire and where you empty your chamber pots they can run down the center there hence that's why we have a good dog kennel those are that little drain in the middle that's what they're actually referring to and again castle wasn't just again a, a, a fiction writer wrote some really perceptive uh, histories of uh, of the blade and the, and the sword and so on now castle remarked that it was often more instructive more instructive to learn from his word villains than we or our unschooled ruffians quote a fight between two villains armed only with clubs or with sword and buckler necessarily admitted of a far greater display of skill Unquote. And that skill, he had uh, uh, italics around it, and it was bold. He thought it was a far greater display whenever you had villains who were just doing whatever they did because it did not obey, oh, the rules that kept getting refined down and refined down and refined down. Castle asserts again and again the true skill, the true fearsome work with dual weapons came from the lower to middle classes and became refined or, as he goes on to clarify, restrained and restricted by code. And the upper classes, that is in these refinements as imitators uh, that we think now of as the height of the art, not so to the original minds. J. Christoph Amberger in his uh, The Secret History of the Sword Adventures in Ancient Martial Arts also asserts this point again and again. The refinements of the duel, deadly and elegant as they may be, and no one doubts that, did not hold a candle to the rough and tumble of the art's forebears. Which leads us to 
unarmed to boxing and wrestling. At the same time, the young gentleman running to Masters of Defense, which was also shortened slang to fencing masters, oh, you get it? Uh-huh. Uh, fisticuffs and a bit of wrestling was being offered alongside. We can't forget the earliest so-called pugilism or boxing schools. You could have quarterstaff, you could have cudgels. There was some sword work, and the boxing is there uh, uh, along the way, because we can't forget initially uh, boxing is pretty much, it's fencing with the arms. But again, these versions of unarmed combat were the gentlemanly cleaned up versions of what was being practiced by the lower classes. There were still sluggers, or obviously in the so-called lower classes going on, but as the gentlemen were coming in, we didn't want to get them all uh, roughed up too bad. And of course, they're still playing a rough game. They had to get in there, and uh, to keep your customers coming back, you had to clean it up a little bit. It's very much as we would have with a strip mall martial art. And there's no, I'm not slinging anything here. We just got to keep in mind, there's a big difference between you get some guys who are rumbling in a pit and doing, let's say, some form of uh, you know, MMA, or we'll say judo, or jiu-jitsu, or, you know, you know, standard uh, Taekwondo, and then you got to, and they might be slinging hard. And if someone's got to keep a business running, he can't have his customers beaten, banged up all the time. He's got to clean it up a little bit, open up some kids' classes, make a way for a cardio class, make sure there's no, some no touch or semi touch or only hit them here, but don't hit them here sort of aspects. That's basically what we had from the lower classes to the middle classes. And we're seeing some of these defense schools and some of these early boxing schools, as many of us will idolize and go, imagine how rough it was then. Yeah, but imagine how rough it was outside of that school. So even these cleaned up mean pieces in these schools, this bare knuckle day or or the wrestling at that time, far more vicious than what we have now. But even at that time, there was something far more vicious. And that's where we're looking at the rough and tumble. Again, that's my bailiwick and what I I just effing love the entire time. But we got to keep in mind historical context lets us know if there's something going on pre or outside of these confines of these boundaries. And again, uh, even very, very, even the more brutal than today boxing and wrestling that permitted more blows and more holds, more tactics than we would ever allow today, even these were born and codified from these little dens for gentlemanly expression. The rules may have been fewer than today, but there were still rules to observe. And again, that's back to that dual-based thinking. Follow these rules, my friends. And as any hard, fast, steady rule, it was always this. A duel, a boxing match, a wrestling contest was between two competitors. No more. Seconds must stay out of the game. Your corner man stays in the corner. These were not the case where the origins of these games were born. There were battle royales. There was open melees. Things come in. Original combat was war-based. Sword, stick, cudgel, halberd. All the, the entire armory, armed and unarmed, was used on a reeling, milling, chaotic battlefield. Assailants were numerous and often fore and aft into either side of the weapon wielder or the person who lost the weapon. And there was no finesse of one-on-one honor game to be played. To tunnel too much on what's directly in front of you, as we must do or train ourselves to do again and again in, in dual-based training is was just in, insane, anathema to what was going on. We see this on that uh, the European side of the pond. We see this in Asia and definitely come to this side where we had zero, almost zero dual-based things. Almost all the indigenous uh, war games had to do with more than one or you had to do with the deficit training to make sure that you're aware of there is other things that can be going on besides that tunnel fixation was directly in front of you. Tactics and strategy differed from the comparatively sober, sterile, and self-contained arena of mono and mono. 
Think of this, village games echoed the battlefield. The word field in proper use refers not to a meadow or to a pasture. These are specific things. Some use it interchangeably, but only to either a battlefield or a playing field. Fields were places of battle or contest. Often village games took the form of taking one item, say it's a ball or a pig, a prize trophy, etc., from one village and taking it to another. The rules of the game, anyone could play. Entire villages often did. The playing field everywhere in either village and all points in between. The rules, don't let them take our coveted thing. Period. That's it. So you've got village versus village melee. You look, you don't know what's being going. You don't know where it's coming from. You've got masses versus masses, sometimes single competitors for a a brief few moments. But for the most part, it's going to be an awareness of everyone and all. Now let's cross the Atlantic uh, to my side of the pond here. We find this huge rough and tumble scrum echoed in the early Americas. Accounts are off after account after account is told of uh, Indian games that involve a ball, an inflated antelope ladder, or a feathered spear, etc., being maneuvered from one point to another. The confines of the game, seemingly none. Accounts tell of play length taking days and often being played overnight. Play crossing miles of unrestricted terrain. At times, hundreds battling for supremacy, men, women, and children. Tactics, evidently, it was all in as the listed injuries are copious and some of them horrific. Play did not stop for injuries. The wounded were tended uh, out of the path of the chaos. And these games, there's numerous, many uh, iterations. And, you know, lacrosse comes to us now, but my God, this is an amazingly cleaned up version of what's going on. Any these early games were called the Little Brother of War, meaning the games must mimic what you might face out there. It was meant to inculcate children or keep uh, men and women's heads in the game to keep the groove greased about how things go on, the chaos and paying attention to everything around you. So the games echoed combat, combat echoed games. The story has been told numerous times of how the smaller, less well-armed indigenous warriors played hell versus larger, better equipped, and better trained forces. This early better training often took the form of large-scale version of rank-and-file dueling writ large. You can't forget that's the way things were done, so we cross the pond over here, and indigenous warriors and then early adopters from the frontiersmen start to recognize the power that comes from no rules, and they did not suffer from what we take as a given, that combat must be a duel. This is how things are done. Now, things were just more seemingly chaotic from this rough and tumble world, whether the weapon is in the hand or not. Indigenous warriors, by training in all-out chaotic games, engaging in so-called battle games, a little brother of war, where one-on-one was almost never the norm. Even in training, almost never is there one-on-one. They found it completely alien to stay on stock still or to face off toe-to-toe, come to scratch, to be blind to the environment and all within it. That's training for blindness and their mindset. The mindset was... Everything could possibly be a problem. Everyone behind you, even if you think, oh, I'm just facing this guy, someone else may come in on this game. These games often took the form of being at a deficit. That is, you face more than one aggressor, pretty obvious, or even in weapon play. The trainee always faced with a weapon deficit. That is, no weapon at all or a weapon considered subpar to the one being faced. To think about it, that's very different from how we run things now, which usually as you and I do some uh, blade work. You get your mock blades at the same size, your tomahawk. Let's do our fake tomahawks this way. Let's do our sticks same length. Let's run these same rat-a-tat patterns. Uh, these earlier deficit training, these forged in a fire of chaotic realities where the young warrior was steeped in an atmosphere more redolent a reality than any dual-based game. And you might be thinking, well, thanks for the history, uh, history lesson, Mark, but what's this got to do with the big training mistake you, you claim is being making? I think you're probably ahead of me here. See, boxing is a sport, right? A duel. It's a sport and duel I love. 
But you get a tunnel on the guy in front of you. Grappling is a sport, a duel, another duel I love. Taekwondo, Hapkido, Ishinro, Arnis, uh, a, a scream. I uh, was being passed off as tomahawk work. All these are sports. All are duels. All have rules, guidelines, and tenets. Their value is in their adherence to body hardening. That, that is an aspect of combat. That's great. Boxing and wrestling and all these things, I think they're absolutely ideal for what's going on. They teach you to get in the scrum. Hell, I think football is the same thing. Teach you to, to eat your bumps and your bangs and know what's going on. The deficit of these, though, lies in they're not living in the deficit, living where there's a pro, there's things against you. Again, I'm not addressing anyone. If you're doing sport, if you're going, I'm training to go into boxing. Well, you should be doing dual-based training. I'm just training for grappling matches. You should be doing dual-based training. I'm training to be a fencer. Same thing, dual-based training. As soon as we say, I'm um, training for reality, and we spend, let's say, it, even 80% of our time only in dual-based training, that's where I start thinking, eh, that's probably not the way to go. You need to widen that focus and get closer to where you're flipping. You go, 20% might be dual-based for skills or because you have a deficit of training partners. The rest of it needs to be addressing what chaos really is so we don't train ourselves to tunnel down. Again, the deficit of the dual-based training is not living at the deficit, and that is the dual-based methods uh, have us matching weight classes versus weight classes or skill levels being matched up or, or same blade versus same blade, same stick versus same stick. We drill endlessly for the dual, not for the chaotic scrum. So the paradox is, I wager everything I've said so far is in agreement in the hearts of most street aficionados. Uh, many will reject some of these sports that I love, uh, you know, boxing and wrestling and MMA, because it is a sport. It's an agreement. I've, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that, well, you know, MMA is just a sport, and that's why I only train reality. And then we'll blithely commence a Zimbrata pattern with mock knives and f or fake tomahawks that follow some dual-based pattern that is like versus like, just facing each other. And I went, I, well, you know, really, there's no difference, brother. I think you're just, you know, this is uh, arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. You're doing the exact same sort of thing, just with, you know, different toys in your hands. Combat, now keep, we got to keep this in mind, combat was and is born by an aggressor that perceives that it possesses, it possesses an attribute that the prey does not possess. All attackers, whether this is an army, a small force, this is the person who's stalking someone in a parking lot, they have an advantage, or at least they think they have an advantage, be that strength, numbers, speed, firepower, etc. Everything that we face is a... They've thought about it ahead of time. They've chosen the time and the place of the battle. We don't know what's going on. So the reality will be we will be at deficit. So we should be training at the deficit. Real world aggressors do not aggress without presumed advantage. Yet we persist in our gentlemanly ways and like to prepare to fight off possible life-threatening harms using a mindset designed to keep young gentlemen safe from the bumps and bruises of the hoi polloi. This has been going on for centuries. We train just like we did then. Well, let's keep it safe. Let's keep this civilized. Well, we might need to look to these indigenous masters of small engagement and adopt some of their ways. In the words of one gentleman regarding the encountered so-called savages, his words, not mine, quote, These savages have taught my crack troops a thing or two. Too bad it is a lesson my dead men cannot learn. Unquote. I think that kind of sums it up and says it all. Well, that's it, crew. Hope you enjoyed yourselves or uh, have your ears on this in the show notes. I'll put where you can read uh, a smaller version of what we just discussed here. Uh, also, if you want to consider, you know, you can always have your ears on this stuff or read about it. If not, if you want to consider living some of these aspects, consider joining the Black Box Brotherhood. But resources over there for our website, extremeselfprotection.com, and our blog where we back this up with all sorts of history and scholarship, so on and so forth. So if you like, share, subscribe, support, podcast, and the blog, and or just jump aboard the crew and subscribe to that monthly subscription service man i'd be obliged take care of yourself
Well, if you dig what we just discussed today, uh, I'd like to invite you to like and subscribe to the podcast. Hell, support it if you want. I'm not your dad. Do what you want. And if you're a glutton for punishment, uh, just visit our website, extremeselfprotection.com. You'll find links to the blog, all of our products, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more pages of like musics. Thank you.